Here's a question for you. Do you like to read other people's mail? You don't have to answer those yet. I, I, I guess you're not sheepishly grinning because you answered. I heard a lot of yeses. But let me clarify. I'm not asking if you should read other people's mail. And I'm not asking if you like it when other people read your mail. I'm not even asking if you would do such a thing, but apparently you do. The question is this, when you walk into a room and see a letter open on the table, would you glance down and read a, a line or two? I would. We would probably. But why is that so tempting? Because in a letter, you see the window of, in, into someone else's soul. People can be really honest in a letter, and it gives us an unguarded view about how they view the world. So, so where am I going with this? Where I'm going with this is, did you ever consider that when you read the Bible, you are actually reading other people's mail? These are all letters in the New Testament. They are letters written to other people. No one is alive today who can say, that letter was written to me. That's not happened. That's not, that's not what's going on. You may feel like it's been written to you, but it wasn't. And that fact, I think, becomes very important when you read Philippians, because it's been called one of the most tender of the letters Paul wrote, and he reveals his heart in a, in a rather unguarded and, and some vulnerable moments as we read through. It's been about 10 years since Paul saw the founding of the church in Philippi, He's older now. He's sitting in a Roman prison under house arrest. He's reflecting on his life, and he begins to write letters to various churches with that perspective. Is this the end of his life? He's not sure, but it might be, and so he, he gets, that gives you a little different perspective. And as he's writing some of these letters, he is very surprised to receive a gift from this church he founded over 10 years ago in Philippi. And the church at Philippi delivered that gift to him by a guy whose name was Epaphroditus. Paul is overwhelmed by their generosity. He's so appreciated, appreciative of being remembered and being thought of while he's in jail. Out of that joy, he sits down and writes this letter back to the church to say thank you. And as we have begun this letter, we saw that thank you phase and, and this general phase. And he tells people about his circumstances and, he, and he's lifting his eyes up to, to the Savior. And so we pick up the letter this morning, if you have your Bibles, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. At this point, he's way past the thank, the thank you stage, and he's to a place of reflection. He's concerned about them over 800 miles away. Now, you can usually tell something important about a person by his friends and by his enemies. Paul had plenty of both. We know he had lots of Jewish opponents who didn't like what he was doing or the message that he preached. They didn't care for his style. He also had a long list of friends and some of them in high places. Romans 16, a whole list of people, a whole chapter full of people who were his friends. Our text this morning talks about two men who were his friends, close friends. Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy was like a, a son to Paul, Epaphroditus like a brother. And together, they were with him during this portion of his, his time in prison. They were keeping up his spirits. They were encouraging him. 
Let's read the text. Philippians 2, we start in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I, may, that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because, he heard, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not, only on, not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. You see, your friends are important in life because you tend to become like them or they tend to become like you. If you hang around complainers, you're going to start complaining. If you hang around people who are very kind, you are going to learn how to be very kind. Howard Hendricks used to say back in seminary days that a Christian man, we, any Christian needs three people in his life. We all need a Paul, we all need a Barnabas, and we all need a Timothy. We need a Paul, we need someone to mentor us in the spiritual life. We need a Barnabas, we need a close personal friend. And we need a Timothy, we need somebody in our lives that's looking to us for leadership and help and guidance. We need mentors, we need friends, we need disciples to find a balance in life. Another question is, who are your heroes? Who are the people who look to you as role models? Because if you tell me who your heroes are, I can tell you something about yourself. I can tell you about your values. When you come to the United States and you come, if you come from overseas, what do you know? We, who do we revere? Who are our heroes? Well, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln tells us something about ourselves. These two men that Paul talks about teach us something, I think, about leadership in a church. These two men teach us how to lead a church family into the future. What makes them worthy of being heroes in our world? Well, that's what we're going to explore this morning. The outline is not mine originally, but I couldn't get it out of my mind, so now it is mine. What are the marks of leadership? And what should mark our leadership? What should mark our church? There are five things in this text, I think. Number one is this. We must put people before prophets. People are more important than prophets. Prophets, you, you got it spelled there correctly. <laughs> Verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, 
that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own, per for his own interests, not those of, of, of Jesus Christ. Timothy is this first person. He wants to send him to them. Timothy came from a mixed marriage, ethnically and spiritually. His father was a Greek who was apparently an unbeliever. His mother was a Jewish convert. She was a, a, a and, and his grandmother as well. They, were, they became believers and converted to Christianity. But over time, Paul came to trust Timothy so completely, he became kind of a stand-in for Paul. Paul could send him as his representative to various locations. He was his right-hand man who, who, who just went to a certain city or a certain church, and Paul could trust him. In verse 20, it says, Paul says that he has no one like him, or it literally means same-souled. There was nobody just exactly like Timothy that he could trust that much. But you need to keep two things in mind when he says that. Number one, he's not thinking about everybody he's ever met. I mean, Luke and Aristarchus were there in Philippi with him at one point. In some of the earlier prison letters, you see them mentioned. They're not, they don't send, he doesn't send greetings from them to Philippi in this book. So they apparently have left. So it seems a lot of people qualified as Timothy was are already out on other mission trips. And number two, Paul did suffer disappointment from those who followed him. They, it was not a cheery time all the time. He says, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He's already said the same sort of thing in this book in chapter 1. In verse 15, he writes, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Verse 17, he says, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Paul's in jail. He can't get away. You know, let's just cause trouble. And then there's Demas mentioned in the early letters during this period of time. But he's not here. He's not there. And eventually Paul will write this about him in 2 Timothy 4. Do your best to come to me quickly for Demas because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone on to Thessalonica. They weren't all faithful. And Timothy stood out in Paul's mind as a man who cared more about the work of Christ than he cared about himself. And he illustrates the, the principle we just read even this morning. The example of Christ in his humility considered others to be better than himself. It's an illustration of somebody willing to follow that example of Jesus, not being primarily concerned with their own circumstances, but caring about what happens with the reputation and the ministry of Jesus. One of the joys of pastoring here, and there are many, is your care and your concern for other people. Your generous response to needs all around the world Every December, usually as we're trying to balance the books and end the year in the black, we do the Advent Conspiracy Project. Why? Because it is something that doesn't benefit us. We give all that money away. You see, it's about making Christmas something that benefits the work of the kingdom somewhere else in the world. It's an opportunity to, in humility, 
consider others better than yourselves. We've done it every year since one, every year but one since 2009. 13 times. We've built three water wells. You have. You built a surgical center. You printed for the first time ever a, a New Testament in the language of a people in Papua New Guinea who never had it before. You sent 272,000 meals to refugees along the Thai Burma border. You refurbished HBI's or Hindustan Bible Institute's headquarters in Nepal so they could have a daycare center and, and have an outreach center there. You sent game equipment to Tesoro out in the Coachella Valley so these, these kids could play. You built a house for Pastor Alex in Uganda. You built playgrounds for orphanages in Thailand, which are currently being constructed and used. And last year, you brought relief to believers suffering in Lebanon. In all, we've collected over $375,000 because you decided not to look out for your own interests, but for those of Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful spirit of giving and of generosity and of humility. And that's what I mean when I say we must put people before prophets. Could we have put that money to use here? Of course we could have. But write this down. The world looks for winners. God looks for servants. We always scan the horizon to look for the winners and for the losers. When we should be scanning the horizon looking for truth. And let it cut however it does. We need to be looking at our impact on people, not just the bottom line. The bottom line's important. You can't do all we do unless, you know, we're balanced. But Timothy put people before himself. And that's, what, that, that's the kind of leadership we can follow. Number two, he says we must put character before conformity. Your character before conformity. Verse 22. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. He's been a, an apprentice of the apostle for years now. He had proved himself. The word is, is it's approved, like, like passing a test. How did he do that? Well, he stuck with Paul through good times and bad times. He volunteered to, talk, to tackle the hard jobs. He refused to cut and run under fire. He would do the menial stuff, the dirty work. He took care of Paul when he's in jail so that Paul was freed up to do what he did best. And that kind of proving doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. Too many of us just want instant spirituality. We want to overnight be mature as we walk with Christ, but it doesn't work that way. Producing character takes time and effort. It takes T plus D to get to G. It takes time plus discipline to equal growth. You need them both. And it works basically in every area of life. You want to start weightlifting, it's going to take time and discipline if you're going to grow. You're going to memorize scripture, same thing. You're going to play the piano, you're going to learn to speak Swahili. All the same formula. Time plus discipline equals growth. When will we learn that God's not looking for super 
um, superstars. He's looking for people with time and discipline who will just grow. We already have too many superstars in the Christian world. People who build their careers on the glitz and the pizzazz and the marketing. God wants faithful people who have proved their worth over time. You can buy talent. I hear you can auto-tune your way to success and stardom. But you cannot buy faithfulness. We must put character before any conformity. Now, Paul is pretty sure he would be freed and he will be able to visit them, to thank them themselves, to encourage them in person. But just in case he can't, he's going to send Timothy. But either way, these Philippian believers will hear fairly quickly what has happened to Paul, either from his own lips or through the lips of this man of character. Third, verse 25, we must put teamwork before competition. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. Epaphroditus, who is this guy? He's a faithful, another, he's got to be a faithful person from the church at Philippi. He was sent by them with a gift, and I think he's actually part of that gift to kind of help care for Paul's needs. His name isn't mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. This is it. This is his only time in the spotlight. He doesn't seem to be a preacher in the normal sense of things. We don't even know if he was an elder there. It doesn't say a leader. All we know is he's a godly young man, apparently willing to serve, willing to go, willing to risk for the cause of Christ. And Paul uses three terms to describe his relationship with, with Epaphroditus. First, he's a brother. You know, we are of the same family, common faith. We're on the same team. Second, he says he's a fellow worker. He's on, we're equal. We're, we're on this team together. Not only are we family and one, but we're on the same team. And third, he says we're, he's a fellow soldier. They are warriors for the same cause. He is sold out to Christ. Now, in verse 25, you might miss it. He uses a, a fourth word to describe Epaphroditus. You kind of lose it in, in the English translations. But he calls him your messenger. The word is apostle. It literally means one who was sent officially representing someone else. Normally, we, we save the word for what the 12 apostles or Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. But I think here Paul uses it in a less formal sense, more general, that he was an apostle sent by the Philippians to help the apostle in Rome. He's a messenger from them to Paul. That's pretty high praise. And in piling up these terms together, I think Paul makes it clear that, that, that this layman from Philippi, he holds in very high esteem. And I find it encouraging that when Paul went out of his way to praise Epaphroditus, he's doing it to his hometown people who know him best. You might need a, a plaque on your desk that says there's no limit how far a man can go if he doesn't care about who gets the credit. You see, that's what Paul is doing here. He's building up Epaphroditus in their eyes. You see, leadership must seek the Lord. We, we need to a, a, and see what God has provided so that, so that 
what does he want to do in our church? Who's equipped us with? Who is here? Who's going to get the credit? That doesn't matter. Because all the trappings of greatness that seem so important today, the big name, you know, this is just Epaphroditus. Leadership has to seek God. What does he want to do here? Don't lord it over with the power they have. God isn't going to ask us, you know, if we had the biggest church. By the way, we don't. But all those trappings of earthly greatness that seem so important will not matter when we come before Christ. And all in, in, in that day, all our competition will be seen for what it really is, a sinful striving for man's glory. Paul would say about the church at Philippi, you know, they really weren't all that wealthy of a church. He would say they gave as they were able and even beyond their ability. So when they heard of Paul's needs, they got together. They decided what could they do? And they put something together and they sent Epaphroditus, some unknown guy. They came together as a team, as a church, and just said, I don't know what the other churches are doing, but, but this is what we're going to do. Teamwork. Number four, we must put kingdom before comfort. Verse 26, he says, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because he heard you were, he, because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. He was sick and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. You know, Paul says, I got to send him back to you because you've heard he was sick. So this, you know, he comes to Philippi, he gets sick, but somehow they heard about it back in Philippi. And then the word came back from Philippi to Paul that they're very concerned that he was sick. How long was, was Epaphroditus there? I don't know. A couple, three months at least for all these messages to go back and forth. But he says, Paul says he was, he was sick and he almost died. That's not an easy trip from Philippi to Rome. About an 800-mile journey if he went by boat across the Mediterranean. I guess he could have walked. I don't know. But when he got to Rome, he gets sick, and, he, and it, it's a pretty serious disease. Not, it wasn't Caesar's revenge, you know, like Montezuma, but, you know, there's a little more serious. Well, that can get serious. But if you've ever traveled abroad, you know that we take precautions, you know, if you're going especially to a third world country. You don't go to Uganda without your yellow fever, without your hepatitis, you know, all this stuff. Epaphroditus faced the danger of international travel without the benefits of modern medicine or the comforts of modern travel. He may have arrived exhausted, which might have led to this struggle in his life, but he cared for Paul. Now, if we're honest, we gotta ask a couple questions at this point. Number one, why didn't Paul just do a miracle and heal him? He's the Apostle Paul. Can't he heal Epaphroditus? Well, one answer or consideration has to be that even in the first century, the apostles apparently couldn't just perform miracles whenever they wanted to. They were under the, the, under the, the subjection to the will of God, which is wiser than our desires. And apparently, God has decided that we believers, we too can get sick. It's part of life. 
And sometimes we get very sick. Sometimes we die of our sickness. Elisha, Hezekiah, Lazarus, Dorcas, Paul himself, Timothy, Trophimus, Epaphroditus. Believers get sick, we die. Now, the scripture is full of comfort in those situations, but we will face them. And the second question everyone wants to know is, well, what did he have? What was his illness? Well, you're good at, your guess is as good as mine. What do we know? We know his sickness was in connection with his service to God. Had he tried too hard? Was he exhausted and his, his defenses down? I don't know. Did he just lose all of his strength and just get sick? Well, it's unclear, but it is clear that it was a serious sickness because he almost died. And his life was hanging by a thread. And he was sick long enough that, that the people back in Philippi could hear about it and send a message back to Rome. And when he heard that message, Epaphroditus in Rome, now he's very upset. He's distressed that they're worrying about him. It sort of seems like he might be on the younger side because his worry might indicate something of a lack of, of spiritual depth in his life. But I'm not sure what to make of all of that. But the challenge facing us is this. Epaphroditus left home. He made a dangerous journey to an unfamiliar city with a new culture, and his, he was exposed to a deadly disease. He's far from his family and his friends, and he nearly died. So, why would he put himself in that kind of a position? It doesn't make any sense, humanly speaking. I think there's only one reason. He did it for Christ and his kingdom. He did it for the sake of the Savior. I mean, what other explanation could there be? He stepped into harm's way, and he and harm hit him right on the head. So how far are you willing to go in your service of the kingdom? How much time will you invest in the kingdom? You're willing to get some shots, sit on a plane for a really long time, watching movies while they feed you decent food so you can get to Africa? We suffer nothing but boredom on that trip. That's, that's not really suffering. But what are your dreams in or for retirement? Have you thought about investing those years in the kingdom? When you have more time, when you have more energy, when you have, you know, more money, what will you do? Would you consider going to the mission field? What's the best investment you can make in the world today? Is retirement only about your personal comfort? Or are you looking out for the interests of others? as you dream and as you plan. What is the best investment you can make in the world today? It's not to invest, to invest only in yourself. We've gotta to learn to put kingdom before comfort. And that's the spirit, I think, of this text. This young man named Epaphroditus put the kingdom of God before his own personal comfort. And few are willing to take such a step. 
G.K. Chesterton said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Too hard. Now, I want to be very clear. I am not saying that to please God, you have to go overseas or you, or you can't retire, you know? I don't know. That's between you and God. But what I'm asking you to think about is, what are we doing to put the kingdom before our comfort? We, maybe it's baptism. Maybe it's inviting a neighbor to dinner or lunch. Or maybe it's, you know, teaching once a month. Those future adults, the future elders over there in Sunday school. Maybe it's volunteering for Vacation Bible School. Maybe it's just holding babies in the nursery so mom and dad can have an hour to concentrate on Christ. Maybe it's attending a high school play or praying for one of our students. Maybe it's for you carving out 20 minutes a day to pray for your grandchildren. Some of us are getting more and more grandchildren. <laughs> maybe it's just delivering, not just, maybe it's delivering flowers on Monday, or making a meal, or teaching English. Where are we putting the kingdom over our own personal comfort? Anywhere? Whether you're young or you're old, how are we investing in the kingdom? That's the question. J. Hudson Taylor said, many Christians estimate difficulty in the light of their own resources. And thus they attempt very little, and they always fail. All giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his power, or they used dependent on his power and his presence to be with him. That's the spirit. Number five, we must put service before security. Verse 28. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, this is Epaphroditus, he's going to send him because he can send him quickly. When you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Simple point. Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi even though he needed him in Rome to be with him. And Paul does this because he doesn't want the church in Philippi to be worried about Paul or to be worried about Epaphroditus. And his message is, you've got a great man here. Give him the honor he deserved. He risked his life for me. And make sure you show him appreciation when he shows up again. That phrase in verse 30, he risking his life. That's a, that's a very specific verb in the original language. It's the verb, and I don't usually tell you these things, but there's a reason why. It's, it's parabaluamai. Oh, you love that word, parabaluma, whatever. It means to expose yourself to danger, to risk, or to gamble. And it was used of people who would risk things for their friends at, in, 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 and risk their own security and safety. It was sometimes used of a fighter who exposed himself to danger in the, uh, in the arena. But a couple of hundred years later, during the, the time of Constantine, 
There were societies of Christians that kind of popped up in various places around the world. They were men and women who called themselves the Parabolani, the risk takers, the gamblers. This isn't a, a, a 50 plus group on a weekend outing to Vegas. No, they served the sick. They took care of prisoners in jail. They searched for the outcasts and they helped them. They made sure that martyrs received an honorable burial. History tells us they were a rather odd group, eccentric and somewhat on the edge. The Parabolani. What are we willing to risk for Christ? Are we just living a comfortable life? And, and again, I really, I do not want to pile guilt onto you. But what I am saying is look at, at the example of Timothy. Look at the example of, of Epaphroditus. Are we like them at all? Because don't forget, it took a bunch of believers to stay in Philippi. Only one went. More stayed behind than, than went. But those people still gave up something. They gave financially. I'm sure they spent time in prayer for him. They're concerned about him. They kept themselves up to date on what was happening. They actually read their update every Friday to see what was going on in the world. They were not a people who just sat in church and went home. They were invested in the struggles and they risked sending Epaphroditus to Paul. It is the curse of Western Christianity that we have constructed a Christian culture that effectively keeps us from risking anything for the gospel. We don't want to lose our advantage. But Oswald Chambers said, when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And maybe that's our problem. We fear God too little and everything else too much. God is looking for people, a few who will gamble, who would be willing to leave Philippi, some sanctified risk takers. Maybe we start a new ministry, Gamblers for Jesus. But know this, everybody gambles their life on something. I'll put my money on Jesus. Where will you put yours? That's the question. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word, the challenge that it brings us, the hope that it brings us, for the importance of relationship and leadership, of of the importance of, of considering decisions in life based on the kingdom of God. We just ask for your grace and your wisdom to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.